if you are a leader listening to this and you hold your pipeline review meetings the same way you did pre-technology, shame on you. Because then what it tells your seller is you don't look at my, what I'm entering and spending all my time entering on anyway, right? And so spend the time to coach me, uh, pay attention, dig into one thing that you think is happening or give some suggestions on ways to move it. But if you're just talking down each deal, why, are, why is the rep spending all that time entering the data into the system? Um, and so if you can change your behavior as a manager, it will start to get your sellers to um, not be quite so resistant in that. Oh, if it's not in your CRM system, you don't get paid. Like that's not the way to get people to embrace what you're trying to do at all. Hi friends. Welcome to the sales enablement podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Tiffany Bova. Tiffany is a growth and transformation advisor, sales strategist, keynote speaker, Wall Street Journal bestselling author, and host of the What's Next podcast and uh, the global growth and innovation evangelist with Salesforce. And in this conversation from the archives of the Sales Enablement podcast, Tiffany and I are talking about the future of B2B selling. We dig into some surveys that were conducted by Salesforce of individual contributors and their perspectives on what is coming next. And there's some really interesting data points that we consider, including why 86% of sellers report seeing an increased importance of long-term customer relationships and an increased importance of building trust. We also get into why, even though on one hand, companies recognize there's no one-size-fits-all approach to selling, that it's important to allow reps the autonomy to work in the most agile and effective manner. And roughly only half of organizations surveyed provide that autonomy to their sellers. We'll also explore other findings from the survey, including results that show that sellers are not spending enough time reading and learning to gain insights on their customers. And then one data point we dig into that kind of blew me away, a survey of sales leaders about the top five tactics they plan to employ for success over the next one or two years. And not one of the five was, quote, help my sellers sell better, unquote. Hmm. So you have to listen to find out what these tactics are. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Tiffany, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, well, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review, give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it with Tiffany. Tiffany, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Andy. It's a pleasure to be back for a second time. I, it may even be a third time. Okay, a third time. I really? Think, it's I been three go, times? I, well, well, I have to go back and check. I think it might be a third time. Yeah. So we always end up talking about Hawaii um, <laughs> as part of the, the, the drill. Um, and I just had to, we're trying to decide, okay, I think we're going to postpone the trip because you know, we were signing that news of the governor of Hawaii saying, tourists, stay home. I was just there uh, a couple of weeks. I've been home now. See, we're in August. I think it's been three times uh, this year. Um, and yeah. so it, it used to be, you know, you had to go with the vaccination. Uh, I mean, sorry, proof of negative test yeah. within 72 right. hours. Right. And then the last time they finally had opened up, if you're vaccinated, you can avoid that. And now they're considering actually bringing back the negative test, even if you have the vaccination. So yes. um, they haven't made that decision yet. But, you know, it was something like 30,000 tourists a day were coming in and out of Hawaii. So it's really hard in a small ecosystem like that, right, to control something. It's it's very similar to what New Zealand has, but they've just sort of kept everybody out. Hawaii, yeah, part yeah. of the U.S., right, lets people in. 
Uh, and, you know, it's just, it, it's tough when people live and work in a place that everybody wants to go and visit. <laughs> so. <sighs> yeah. I mean, he was, the governor was on his news conference. I saw he was saying, you know, if it doesn't really, if we don't turn the corner here, we may have to go into shutdown mode. So. Yeah, that's a little difficult in the U.S. at this point with the temperature. It might have been a little bit different back when it, they first did the shutdown and, and flights <laughs> stopped. But I don't know if if I don't know if people would be open to that happening again, especially the economy. I mean, Hawaii, you know, is so dependent upon that's its two biggest yeah, I know. its two biggest economies. Number one is uh, the military because we have all branches of military mm-hmm. on one island, uh, and second is tourism. So if you shut down tourism, it's it's really tough for for the locals. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. But anyway, um, so we're going to talk about future of sales. We are. And, and yeah. And um, yeah, since last time we spoke was just pre-pandemic by maybe a year or so. Uh, we just talked when your, your latest book had come out. And um, a lot of changes. Yeah, it was an interesting time. You know, I, I'd say that now that we're kind of 18 or 19 months into this, um, I've been really inspired by the resiliency of sellers around the world of how they very mm-hmm. quickly responded to the fact that some were field sellers were now inside sellers uh, and really doubling down on how do I stay connected to my customers inside sellers saying, okay, now that I'm not able, some that might've been development reps in some way, sending out my field people, how can I connect more internally to make sure we're taking care of everybody? And while the first sort of four to six months showed from a research perspective that customers were feeling like the engagement wasn't as uh, effective as it was face-to-face, by the time we got to October or November of last year, uh, this is according to McKinsey, actually not our state of sales report, Um, Mm -hmm. They actually showed that customers were feeling like the engagement level was better than it was face to face because it's much more focused. Like, I don't need lunch for two hours or come by my office. We can talk for 15 (laughs) minutes, you know, answer questions and move on. And so um, it'll be interesting to see now that that this kind of hybrid selling now that some parts of the country and parts of the globe are opening back up uh, and allowing visitors and salespeople to sort of come out, go out and visit customers. How much of it will now be, will it be digital first, virtual first? Will it be face-to-face first and then virtual and digital when you can't be face-to-face or if it'll be in the reverse of that? So, uh, you know, it, it's been a, a crazy 18 months, but like I said, it's been great to see how sellers have responded. Yeah. Well, what's your take on that? The, so the scenarios you outlined, because, you know, I think in the context of a lot of selling I did earlier in my career, selling to international customers, big, complex, yeah, multi-million dollar type systems. And we had constraints in that we were yeah, oftentimes bootstrap startups and we'd, we couldn't afford to travel a lot. And so we were you know, sort of virtual first. That was mostly telephony at that point. Um, and we traveled very sparingly. We traveled for the moments that we thought would really make a substantial difference, right? Um, and it seems like that's a mindset that, that people need to adopt. I I don't know if it's going to go back totally to the way that it was. And I don't know if it's going to stay exactly where it is here. uh, You know, where we're at right now, I think it's going to fall somewhere in between almost similar to what you just said, Andy, where it's going to be this combination of let's make sure we're using uh, the best use of not only our customers time, but our employees time, especially because Mm -hmm. 
Uh, 66% of a seller's time is spent on non-selling activities. And so you definitely want to give them a lot more time back. And if windshield time is one of those things that eats up a majority of their day, not fly time, but let's just talk windshield in the first place, then maybe you can do Mm -hmm. that virtually. If it's an airplane trip, um, then that might have different hurdles of, okay, when do you actually get on a plane versus when can you do it you know, via a virtual, whether it's Zoom or something else, in order to uh, connect with the customer. But there are still things I believe you just uh, are so much better served face-to-face. I agree. And I, but I was, <laughs> I was thinking back, like, well, my experience is like, you know, I didn't want to get on that plane to Hong Kong, but there were times when you knew I had to right? Uh, it was going to make a difference. It was going to move the deal forward. We just weren't able to do uh, remotely. And I think, I think those moments will come back and sellers have to be more attuned to the buyer in a sense to understand when those are. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, pre-pandemic, when I talked to uh, large and small selling organizations, most of the field sellers were very adverse Um, We were really talking in the context of using CRM as field sellers. And many of them would Mm say, absolutely not. Takes up too much time. All the information's in my head. The relationship is (laughs) face-to-face. I know everything about my customer. It doesn't need to be in our CRM system. And and I would say, well, I could give them 100 examples of why that might not be true. Uh, (laughs) It's true, right? Let's see how much you really understand about your customer. But yeah, go ahead. Overnight, they were forced into, they couldn't rely on that. And so now all of a sudden they'd have to rely on technology to potentially help them do those communications and reach out, especially in the first kind of 30, 60, 90 days. And they might not have had any of that past information in the CRM system so that people could even uh, give them some support. So, you know, I'm wondering if um, the greatest, you know, inside sellers, this is a different conversation, but for field sellers, which were really impacted and or your sell-through or sell-with channel partners who might have been out in the field on your behalf, that's where it was really impacted. Or retailers, right? When you get that face-to-face opportunity. So um, I think now uh, customers, both in the B2B and B2C space, are far more comfortable in this hybrid way of approaching engagement during the selling process and the buyer journey. But I wonder as things uh, start to open back up, if it'll creep back into, you know, a more even slant on that, you know, so maybe it's 50, 50, mm-hmm. maybe it's 60, 40, but do I feel like it's going to be 95, five kind of what it is right now, right? Sort of 95 virtual and five in person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to think it's going to go back somewhere. I don't know if in the middle, but it's, you know, I got just based on my own experiences is like, I, mean, I sort of had the sense, I'm curious on your opinion about this is because I'd read you know, a number of research reports about you know, the changes as a result of the pandemic and the switch to virtual selling is I had the sense that that organizations, sellers thought that they were doing more in-person touches than they actually were. And that, you know, even field sellers, I mean, you're still following up with your customers on the phone. You're still, you know, doing things where you're not always, you know, what percentage of your interactions actually were face to face. And I, you read these reports and you sort of, I read one, it was like, uh, you know, field sellers were saying that 75% of all their interactions with their buyers were face-to-face. And I thought, I don't think that's the case at all these days. Well, you know, we've just spent quite a bit of time talking about what we want to do as sellers. And I think the biggest question and the more important question is what do customers want to do sure. with their sales teams that, you know, with brands and vendors that are trying to sell to them. 
And so even right. if you're a selling organization that wants to get right back into face-to-face -face and you're fine and let's get everyone back into you know the status quo, the customers may be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like you don't need to come by. Right. I don't want to have lunch. We don't need to, we're not going to attend your event or we're not going to play golf or we're not going to go to something else. Like just let's have a quick 15 minute video call. And so it, it's not just about what salespeople want to do. It's what buyers are going to either now, I'll allow in air quotes, right? Allow them to do, expect <laughs> them to do, um, and or, you know, actually would want them to do. And so if customers are going to say, we want digital first, we want virtual first and face-to-face -face second, and sellers are going, we want face-to-face -face first and digital second, there is a disconnect, right? So it, yeah. you have to, as a sales leader, if you're listening to this, not just do what you think you should do or what your sales teams are itching to do. But go out, you know, either virtually uh, and or face to face as you can and talk to your customers about how they want to continue to engage mm -hmm. with your organization going forward now that things are so different. And I have maybe a little contrarian point of view, which is that buyers have been this way for a while. I mean, you know, my experience was working with you know, customers and sales organizations and so on was that. Yeah, they didn't want to do dinners and they didn't want to play golf. And this has been sort of a trend that's been emerging for 20, 30 years. I'd say there's and a I mix of it. Of, I, think, I think we've accelerated it with the pandemic for sure. But I think it was it was already in that direction. The buyers are just too busy that to the same reason as a seller, you wanted to be very selective about when you used a face-to-face, -face, when you ask the customer to invest time to meet with you. Customers are also becoming much more sensitive about investing time with sellers. Well said. And, I, and I'd say this, that um, through all of this, I think what sellers should learn is the fact that customers want value in each of their yes. interactions. And so if it's just yes. lunch for lunch's sake, and we're going to talk about Hawaii, although I could talk about Hawaii all day, Andy, right? Um, ultimately, <laughs> yeah, well, that's because we're not selling each other stuff. Right. But, yes. but you know what I'm saying? That they want to have yeah. value. And so if they have viewed, so, so to your point, is the reason customers over the last decade or two, clients, you know, prospects have felt like they wanted to do those things less and less is because the value that they were getting from sellers was actually declining. And they and yeah. and and so I would say yes, because then that leads me right to the next step, which would be when CEB said that sixty three percent of a buyer journey is you know already happened by the time they reach out to a salesperson. So if you say they weren't adding a lot of value, and so the so the buyer's like, I'll just go out and get my own information because I've spent three mm -hmm. meetings with this seller and I still can't get an answer to my question. They keep just demoing me what they want to and talking to me about what they want to talk about and, you know, trying to, mm -hmm. you know, force the hand and accelerate my process and all those things. So I'm just going to do it without them. And then once I have a better understanding, I'll reach out. And, in, and instead of sellers going like, oh, how do we stop that from happening? Right. How do we put out better content to lead them to us? Maybe they should have said, maybe we weren't adding value along the way in, in, in the eyes of our customer. And so, yep. How can we change that? And even if they, had, you know, reach out to you at the 60% mark, right? And they're three quarters through the buyer journey, be happy they reached out to you. So now don't take them backwards back into your sales process. 
meet them where they are and keep them moving forward. But unfortunately, you know, many selling organizations go, well, we have to put them through our sales process because that's the only way we can keep, you know, tabs on productivity and funnel acceleration and marketing dollars and cost of acquisition instead of letting the customer sort of dictate what that engagement will look like. Yeah, no, I agree 100 percent. But a question about this, because somebody was asking me about this earlier today, about this, you know, 66 number that or whatever it is, 50, 66, you know, you hear various numbers. What does that really signify, though? Is it is it that they've used 66 percent of the time they've allocated for this process? Um, because, you know, it's very hard to measure and look in someone's brain and say, well, I've made up two thirds of my mind about what we want to do is is there, you know, what's the context that 60 in your mind? Cause I know it's hard to know, but what is that context of two thirds? Is it they've, they've gone through per the Gartner chart, you know, they've gone through two thirds of the steps or accomplished two thirds of the jobs they need to accomplish uh, in order to make a decision before they engage with a seller. It could be, you've made my short list. So what did they do before mm-hmm. you made the short list, right? You're down to my last, you know, I've made a short list down to three, I now know what I want, where it might've been, we don't know who we want. So we're going to go talk to an association. We're going to do our own investigation and research. We're going to talk to other mm-hmm. companies like ours, like our size, you know, whether it's organizations you're part of, whatever it might be. And so, Oh, I found these six companies that, you know, these six names, I start doing a little due diligence on my own. I knock these two out. I'm down to four. And then I talk to a reference of the fourth one. I go, Nope, they're out. Now I'm down to three. I feel good about these three. Now I reach out. So I'm just giving yep. that as an example, right? Uh, and sure. and so no, it's a good example. And, and so that's a great way to just say it's not a. I don't know what I want, you know. And there's sort of this framework I put together when, as, as you sort of mentioned, Gartner when I was still there, which now it's been five years. Mm-hmm. But this was probably uh, eight years ago, and I came up with this concept around trying to categorize uh, what a vendor brand company should categorize customers that come to them. So the first customer type was, I know what I want and I'm ready to buy. Jesus, make that easy. Like online, Mm -hmm. super frictionless. I have five of something. I want five more, like make it easy. Like I are right. Right. I'm already a customer. I know what I want. I know what I want to buy. Um, Or I'm not a customer. I know what I want and I want to buy. Also make it easy. I I know Mm -hmm. what I want and I want to buy because I'm a customer or I'm a prospect but I have some questions, right? So it might be, hey, listen, you know, I think that we're gonna go with you, but could you just tell me about your support? Is it 24 seven? Is it, you know, five by eight? Is it, you know, what is it? Answer a few questions and they're ready to buy. Then there's a big chasm. And, you know, the argument I usually get on this example is commodity versus a complex sale. So hold that thought for a second. So then you cross this Mm -hmm. chasm. Mm -hmm. The next category is, I know I have a problem or business need, but I do not know how to solve it. So that example I just gave, right? You're down to my three. I know I have an issue. I don't know how to solve it. Now that opens up, you know, a longer sales cycle than those first two, right? Mm -hmm. The fourth Mm -hmm. category Mm -hmm. is, is a much longer sales cycle. I don't know I have a business problem. I don't know there's an opportunity to make my life better. And I am not looking. Okay. In that fourth one, that's marketing, right? Trying to go, Hey, here we are. Mm -hmm. Here's the brand. Here's a problem you don't know you have. Right. And that sales cycle is really long. And if you're a sales rep calling that fourth category, that sales cycle is not quick. 
Now they're like, what are you even talking about? I don't even know what the problem is you're trying to define for me. Like, okay, versus the first sales cycle, right? I know what I want. I'm Mm -hmm. ready to buy, whether they're a customer or not. And so if you think about it in those four categories, what is your sales model? What is your marketing, uh, you know, campaigns against that? Um, What kinds of Mm -hmm. talent do you put against that from a people? Do you need a high powered complex seller in category one? I don't think so, right? Do you need someone who really understands business and ROI and is able to talk to the C-suite and a CFO? That's probably number four. So thinking about Mm -hmm. it that way, and when I first presented that, right, I got that commodity and complex. And the answer isn't about what you think you're selling. It's about where the buyer is in their process. That's why it kind of eliminates that question. But the second thing people would say to me is, oh my God, how do I even isolate those different kinds of buying personas, right? And I said, it's more that I want you to think about not all sales are the same, not all, you know, journey is the same, not all sales process is the same. And once you're okay with that, you may make different decisions post pandemic because of what you've learned over the last 18 months. And so that's Mm. just a way to think about it differently. No, I love that. You should publish that again. Yeah, you know, it, everybody says that. I, you know what, Andy? I will make a commitment <laughs> that I will publish that again. Yes, okay, good. I will publish I that again. I think you should. I think that's. I think that's great. So, well, I wanted to get into another topic. It was in the Salesforce report, say sales report, but uh, I think it relates to something that you also uh, wrote about when you were at Gartner. So, it was talking about reporting that reps reports are following impacts of the current conditions, and was. 86% talked about is increased importance of long-term customer relationships. 83% reporting increased importance of building trust before a sale. 80% increased importance of building trust after a sale. And so I read that and it sort of strikes me. It's like, well, hasn't it always been, trust always been important? And, yep. and, I, and I was sort of always thinking back to, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember reading a report that you, I think you were on a co-author of from Gartner, and this was, you know, while well, you're still there, obviously. But it's talking about trust. We're saying that in the eyes of the buyer, that the first serve, the most important level of trust that they have is with that individual seller, more than the organization they work for. Did I have that right? Uh, yes, and yes, on both of those. And, and I would say that I yeah. think we are in a crisis of trust now. The, the Edelman Trust Barometer has actually showed cracks in trust between consumers and brands over the last five or six right. years. And, and it's trust with right. things like, how are you using my data? Are you selling my data? If there's a breach, are you telling me about it? <laughs> like the day it mm-hmm. happens instead of eight or 10 months later when you've sort of fixed it, right? right? Or you put out sales practices that create bad behavior amongst your salespeople, like productivity yeah. metrics, like what happened at Wells Fargo. You know, so you have- right. Um, examples of where trust has been broken. Uh, And you'll also have the perception of like the car salesman or the car saleswoman, right? And it's like, they're just trying to hawk products, right? There's no trust. It's always a a man, Tiffany. It's always a man. I I said both. I know, but it's... it is always a man. I, I run this, you know, digressors. I run this test with people. I say, you know, close your eyes for a second. And, you know, especially dealing with sales managers that, you know, haven't diversified their sales team. I said, you know, picture sort of the stereotypical salesy bad behavior, you know, that, that we see in popular culture about sellers or you've witnessed yourself. So is it ever a woman? 
I'm gonna. <laughs> I am like, not. No, actually, I'm not gonna answer that question. I'm not gonna answer that question. <laughs> but what I'll say is, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? You know, yeah, if right. you look at right all Jordan of those Mountmore, movies, yeah, yeah it, there are, yeah, th- yes. But but I, I'm gonna pass on that. I'm gonna pass on that one. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, yeah. hire more women, but um, in sales, but but you know, this trust issue is is as you said, yeah, it's it's broken. But it's funny, you're just reading even online, you know, the groups on LinkedIn and engagement with, you know, content on LinkedIn. It's like, it's like the, there's a sort of this acknowledgement that yeah, maybe trust is important, but we see people sort of backing away from this idea of how they get there, right? Is it's like they assume that it's, it's there as opposed to I have to make a connection with a human being and we have to earn this trust. Well, you do have to earn it, right? You Because for salespeople, like you have to not only earn it on a personal level, but the brand or company you work for, they have to earn it as mm-hmm. well. So you might exactly. be a real trustworthy guy or gal seller and your, you know, your clients trust you to do the best thing for them or what you tell them, you, they believe you. And then they, they hear something at the brand level. So they may be like, look, I trust you, Andy, or I trust you, Tiffany. But I'm not sure about the brand, right? Like there was this, mm-hmm. this breach and they didn't tell anybody. And I, how are you guys using the data? And so, you know, that gets the sales rep caught between they're a trustworthy individual. But there right. may be this misperception of what the trust is at the brand level. I'm not saying it's a bad brand or untrustworthy. I'm just saying that there may right. be a misperception. But right. you also have this conversation around transparency, like, well, you are capturing my data. What are you doing with it? And being more forward about that in a transparent way. Things around like diversity, inclusion, or sustainability, we know all those. Like, what are you saying about that? But that right. kind of transparency leads to more trust. And so if you're going to say, hey, we made a mistake, this is what happened, this is how we correct it, and you move on, p- customers start to say, listen, when you launch a new product, I'm more likely to try it from you. When there's a problem, I trust that you're going to, you know, back up your word and you're going to stand behind your product and you're going to, you know, show up for me when I need something. Or there's a challenge around pricing that you're not going to pre-charge me and then I have to fight for the money back. Or Mm -hmm. it's really hard to cancel when I don't. All of those things play into it. And the sales rep is caught in between, right? Because I I say this all the time. Look, a sales rep, unfortunately, cannot control their quota cannot control the you know brand perception cannot control right. the prices right. of the products they sell they most of the time can't even you know uh, choose the accounts they go after or the territories right. or the discount right. structure the only thing a sales rep can control the one and only thing is the way they show up in front of a customer yep That's the only thing you can control, right? So are you trustworthy? Are you knowledgeable? Are you adding value? Do your customers want to meet with you? Like that's all you can control. And so if for some reason you feel like you're working at a brand where there is this uh, uh, lapse in trust amongst your customer base, you have to make a decision. Is this where I want to continue to hang my reputation and my shingle? Exactly. Or do I stay here and hang on? And if you trust where you work, then you hang on because you know that it will course correct. But if you feel mm-hmm. like it's you know time and time and time and time again, um, it does impact uh, your reputation and and you know the one thing you know outside of how you show up that you can control, you know is that reputation. So it's really important, especially if you want to sell over the long term, if you want to sell mm-hmm. across multiple companies, if you want to move up into leadership and management as a seller, those things matter. 
Yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the other element I think that's looking at from the buyer perspective then, and this report addresses this, is that from buyer perspective, this trust grows in importance when they're in situations that are less predictable, as they've been in the last 18 months or so. Yeah, you know, when they perhaps have fewer resources and when sort of the ability to predict the future becomes a little bit hazier. Yeah, and I, I, you know, look, there's no way to predict where we're going to be 12 months from now, right? This is not something's happening in some part of the world or in some industry or in some right. sector. This is a global impact that, you know, I know for sure I haven't seen in my lifetime. Um, and I'm guessing you haven't in yours either, Andy, right? I mean, ultimately, <laughs> oh. I can't remember when something like this has happened so universally and globally, right? The financial crisis yeah, in the U.S. No, touched all, other right. places, right? The tsunamis right. and things like that will touch places, um, pandemics in certain parts of the world. But ultimately, this has just touched everything. And so I also think that there's this much more empathetic understanding of the situation everybody's in. Uh, and if you can show up with that kind of tone in the communication and connection with your customers, uh, it shows that at least you're being aware mm -hmm. of the situation and you're not going, I need to close this deal before the end of the month, before the end of the quarter, because it's all about my commission check and I'm trying to make it to club, even though we're not traveling. I want my name on that list. Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, I want to be a superstar mm -hmm. seller. And the customer's going like, I'm trying to keep my doors open. Like I'm trying to keep my employees employed. Right. And so it's this balance between your agenda as a salesperson to close business and, you know, the, the situation that your customers, uh, current and future are in at the moment. Yeah. And to your earlier point, that's, it's never been easier as a seller to find common ground, to form this connection with the customer. Cause as you said, this is sort of a once in a lifetime where we're all experiencing the same level of disruption. Um, and so if you can't, if you can't connect with something, form this human basic human bond based on that, then that's you know a different a different problem. But yeah, that's and, there, and that provides the basis for going forward. Yeah, and I'll give you Salesforce as an example. It was early in the pandemic. I'll call it sort of it was probably April May timeframe. Uh, and Mark Benioff, our CEO, gave us all mm -hmm. a challenge. Um, and at the time, I want to say I don't know the exact numbers, so don't hold it to me. But I think it was like fifty seven thousand employees or sixty thousand employees at the time at the right. time that this happened. The Slack deal hadn't closed. So um, mm -hmm. he gave us a challenge to have 1 million conversations with customers. Conversations. Over what time frame? It was just, let's have 1 million conversations with customers. Okay. Right? Right. right. And it wasn't like over the next 10 years. If you know anything about us, it wasn't that. No, yeah, no, I know. It's, yeah, right? That's what I'm saying. Was it, was it over a month I, you or know, two months? I don't months know or, if yeah. he said in the next quarter, but I think it was a quarter or two. Okay. Okay. All right. So they Perfect. so they put a program together. We put a program together. You know, created it obviously in Salesforce, and you know, came up with the enablement tools and trained everybody about what was going to happen. Now it was not one million sales calls, one million demos, one million RFP responses. One million conversations. So we captured all those conversations, and sure enough, it told us that where we were focusing at the beginning of 2021, which our year only started February 1st. <laughs> Right? So mm -hmm. we were only like 60 days into the new year for us. And it was like, okay, everything we thought February 1st, right. we need to just hit pause. Hold on. Right. right. We reorganized right. part of our product roadmap. We launched six new products. We reorganized product teams. We opened up 4,000 new recs. We, you know, uh, started to um, 
message in sort of what did we need to do? What partnerships did we need to strike? We went out and struck mm -hmm. a partnership with CVS, not from a product perspective, a technology perspective, but from a partnership of we knew that vaccines and scheduling of getting back to work was mm -hmm. going to be important. And so we needed to make sure that we partnered with someone who could feed that kind of data uh, potentially into the system, you know, with obviously all of the right compliance and rules. Right. And lo and behold, we hit a million and a half. So in classic Salesforce form, it was like, okay, well then do 5 million or 6 million, right? Because if you can do it. So anyway, it was a little more than that 6 worked. million. Let's do more. Yeah. Right. Right. And, um, you know, the, the launching of that knowing video is going to be first and how to do these digital, um, uh, you know, virtual connections with customers, but also territory mapping. If you didn't need a human in a car to go drive somewhere, territory mapping mm -hmm. became much different and you could get coverage into accounts much more easily if you didn't have face to face. So I give that as an right. example, because even at, you know, 60,000 employees, even 21 years into the history of Salesforce, you always have to have that beginner's mind to say, what's going on in the market in our customer base? What do they need from us today versus what they might need from us tomorrow? And they may not be able to articulate what they need, i.e. getting back to work safely might not, you know, sure. they might not have said we need work.com <laughs> or we need right. something in service cloud, but they'd say, I don't know what to do and what's going to happen when I need to get my people back to the office. Wow, we heard that consistently. And so we're like, how do we, right. right, layer a product, a technology on top of helping our customers do just that. And so right. I give that as an example, because you have to become a master asker. And then you have to be really good at listening to what your customers are telling you. And as a salesperson, it may mean you back off from a deal, hold for a month, call them back later. Mm -hmm. But that's that empathetic, understanding kind right. of conversation that isn't just based on the agenda of closing business. And I, I'm this, that's a wonderful story. I mean, I, I, but Salesforce, and but there's so many, you know, counter examples. <laughs> we, you know, we had counter during the same period of, you know, doubling down on sellers and, and, you know, when sellers were isolated, they didn't have peer support, they weren't in the office. And yeah, I think you've probably seen the statistics about, you know, just the level of stress among sellers has, has skyrocketed during this period, which is not purely due to the pandemic, but, you know, pressures at work and so on. Just wondering, you know, is this something that you guys are seeing as well? And, and you know, do you see that, you know, as part of the, you know, we're talking about this hybrid work arrangement, I get the sense that in the conversations I have on this show and other places is that, yeah, they appreciate the sellers appreciate the flexibility, but they also really miss being with people, their peers. Yeah. So I'll answer the first part of your comment is yeah. um, we were surveying our employees uh, monthly where we used to do it sort of quarterly. We're doing monthly mm -hmm. and we saw a spike in stress. Uh, and anxiety and uncertainty and all of those things. Mark actually went on, um, uh, Jim Cramer's show and talked about it. Mm -hmm. And what we did was uh, we ended up saying, you know, no meeting Thursdays. We changed the Google calendar from 30 minute meetings to 20 minute instead of hour meetings, 50 minute meetings. Mm -hmm. um, we had wellness Fridays once a month. Um, we limited, you know, the amount of to for people to block hours during the day where it's just not back to back to back to back to back Zoom calls because now you don't need to right. walk from tower to tower or right. you know meeting to meeting that you actually could do back to back all day. 
Um, and over the course of sort of six months, we start to saw, see that sort of level off. So you're right. And mm -hmm. um, there was high level. And that was just across all employees, not just sellers. Right. But right. pre-pandemic, I started really digging into this topic because I feel like, look, I'm oversimplifying, but companies do two things. They make stuff and they sell stuff. Mm -hmm. Kind of it. And if you're not selling stuff, people lose jobs, businesses go out of business, and there's a lot mm -hmm. of pressure already on sellers. And yep. I often joke that like outside of doctors, right, emergency workers, like who else is on call 24-7 besides salespeople? I don't care if you're selling real estate or technology. If your client calls you on a Saturday night at 10 o'clock and you're in sales, you pick up the phone. You answer mm -hmm. emails when you're on your quote unquote family vacation. vacation you, know, sure. you're, you, right. you don't want to go because you feel like no one can handle your book of business as good as you. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure you're achieving those numbers. And depending on what industry you're in, sometimes the majority of your salary is based on that commission. So if you're not selling, you're not making enough money. And that's a lot of pressure anyway, Right. <laughs> let alone, oh my God, all my clients have closed their doors. Half of them won't open back up again, you know, or yep. you were servicing the restaurant industry or the hospitality industry yep. and it was just obliterated overnight. Right. So, um, you know, that is a, a level of stress that it's the responsibility of sales managers and leadership to make sure they're taking care of their people. They're paying attention. And if you have someone on your team who is acting way out of character, like not responding when they normally do or dropping the ball on projects or not following through on things that they always did, pick up the phone, call them, don't text them, don't pick up the phone and call them, ask them if they're doing okay. And I think that that's a lot of leadership around not only coaching, but mental health and well-being. Um, there's a great organization I work with called uncrushed.org. Mm -hmm. yep. And we actually are focused in on that seller community mm -hmm. and how do we help deal with mental health and stress and anxiety in that particular uh, role, if you will. And it's been amazing to hear all the stories of, of people who felt like they were the only one, right? Or yep. no one else was yep. feeling the stress or something was wrong with them because they just weren't able to get themselves out of this rut. And so, no, you're not alone. Um, there are lots of us out there who, who feel that pressure every day. And if you're feeling it, um, get with your manager, get with, you know, the, the, the groups or, or outlets that your particular company may have at your disposal and take advantage of them, especially during this time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uncrushed that you know, their latest survey was, you know, 75% of sellers feel stressed or extremely stressed. And yep. That was mine. Yep. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's like huge red flag, right? Because yeah, there, and there, I, there, you know, there has I to even, be an impact on, on their personal productivity levels when you feel that level of stress. Yeah. And I, I, even on their very first podcast they did, I was, I was the guest and I was talking about, you know, if I were a manager today, cause I'm not, a, I'm not in sales and I'm not a sales manager anymore. I just, you know, advise and guide, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of, of the largest selling organizations in the world. And, and, and I would say that I hope I would be a better manager today, knowing all I know now right, right. than I was when I was still a sales manager, because I was cranking 14 hour days, our executive leadership meetings were on Saturdays. We were grinding 7 a.m. to 9 mm. p.m. You know, I was running sales service and and uh, marketing for a, you know, one of the very first web hosting companies. I was a Loquas beta client and Constant Contacts beta client. We, we were really pushing the envelope on what we were doing, but I had not slept in my bed seven straight nights for three and a half years. Wow. Like it was, you know, a, a merry-go-round Ferris wheel 
whatever you want to call it, and I couldn't get off. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I unnecessarily put that burden on my sales team right. to sort of keep that kind of pace as well. Uh, and I hope, you know, as a, as a manager today, if I were to manage the sales team again, that I would, I would be um, not that same kind of leader. But so, you know, I share that story because I think even with the best intention as a high performing leader in a high performing selling organization growing exponentially um, and, you know, making a lot of waves in the market, you get a little caught up in it and you just don't take that break to take care of yourself and your own mental health as well as those around you. Yeah. So a question is, is in that scenario you're in, that situation you're in, could you, did you have to work that way to accomplish what you did or could you have, could you have accomplished what you did with a different work style? Well, I'm going to date this. This is 2000 to 2004, sure. right? And it, and so it SaaS, yep. you know, Salesforce, like the ability to be more productive. It was Excel spreadsheets, bubble gums, and a lot of post-it notes, right? right? We were running our business on, um, you know, technology that is not as it is today. Yeah. If I if I had what we had today back then, I hope my answer would be different, right? I yeah. hope I would say, well, of course, but but my CEO at the time happened to be um, previously to his role uh, that he was uh, my CEO, my boss. Um, he was sort of Michael Dell's number two guy. He was mm -hmm. his global sales leader for about a decade, taking him from a very small business to a very large business. Mm -hmm. So already you have a CEO who is a hardcore <laughs> seller. So as a seller being led and managed by a seller with who happens to be the CEO, the pace of business was different anyway, right? Because it had that kind of selling mentality right. um, that that I don't think um, I'm almost confident that there is no way I could have pushed back <laughs> in that particular environment. Right. Um, but I will tell you, I learned a ton. It was sort of a crash course yeah. in what it was like to scale a business, you know, to 130 million. We were four times the size of Rackspace. We almost bought Rackspace. Like, and we started at you know, 20 million. We acquired 20 companies. You know, it was it was crazy, but it was um, fulfilling and thrilling until the day I sort of dropped off my badge and I took a deep breath and I said, you know, I'm going to do this again and I'm going to do it differently. And that's right. what I did. You know, I had another role before Gartner where that pace was very different for a couple right. of years. Yeah. So uh, there was something in the report that was interesting, sort of tied into this, this sort of stress issue, which is that saying that... Um, I think 73% of sellers uh, feel like they're increasingly being monitored. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, yes. I thought, okay, well, that seems like a stressor for some. Uh, you know, certainly the you know, technology gives more transparency to what's happening in, in sales. And, and reps are have to expect that now these days. Yeah, and I think that this, this goes back to leadership and management. You know, unfortunately... Mm -hmm. Um, many sales managers are ex-individual high performers. That isn't always a great situation right? because the expectation is everybody should be able to be like me and I'm going to manage them the way I would manage myself. And that doesn't always work. Right. And so there has to be some ability to have a portion of what they do being autonomous, right? Mm -hmm. And flexible and creative and a portion of it being much more predictive and productivity metric driven. Right. And, you know, this is an often a conversation I have with sales ops and IT and chief revenue officers about this whole concept of 
Salesforce being viewed as an input mechanism, as a way to measure every second of every minute of every day of every month of every quarter of your salesperson. Mm -hmm. And that's why sellers are more reluctant to actually spend time in it because they feel like it is the thing. It's sort of big brother looking over me. Yeah, it's about command and control, right? Versus, hold on, if you do all these things in Salesforce with AI, with machine learning, with the prediction and analytics that are built into the system now, instead of calling 100 people a day, call these 10 that are more likely to buy from you. Yet, yet, so many selling organizations today still say, call 100 people today. Just as an FYI, you know, I was trained on the call 100, 10 call you back, three will set a meeting, one will buy in 1995, Mm. literally. Well, right. Yeah, I was trained in that in the 70s. So, yes, it hasn't changed. For me, it was, yeah, it was for me in 95. You got the 70s. At the end of the day, it hasn't changed yet. How much has technology changed? Exactly. How much has the customer changed? How much has the internet and the smartphone and all the things we were just talking about changed, yet you still run a selling organization like you didn't have access to all that? Um, And change is hard. And I think when it comes to revenue, uh, sales leaders are worried about disrupting the apple cart and actually making changes into the business like what we're talking about because they feel like what they've always done works. And I, I just don't believe that that's a recipe for success going forward. I don't think it is either. I, I, I sort of, I'm always amused at, you know, certain segments of the sales business that, uh, you know, want to wear this label modern sales. And then, you know, you look at the sales processes and the, the activity metrics that they enforce. And it's like, yeah, they were doing this 40 years ago. All you've done is applied technology to it. What's modern? Right, and, about, and, what's modern about well, this? You know, hundred call 10. That's modern. So I'd say we don't have a technology problem. We have a people process problem. Yes, absolutely. There is no shortage of technology. Nope. At all. Yep. For anything you want to do in sell sales service or marketing, there's no shortage. But there's a people process issue. And and I often say we don't sell technology, we sell change and change is hard. And so you have to get somebody if they deploy Salesforce or anything else, and then they just apply really bad processes and organizational structure on top of it and then expect these miraculous results and they don't get them, they blame the technology versus really doing the hard work on the people and process side and saying, okay, what, how can we change the way we're doing it, eliminating and automating a lot of the, uh, you know, repetitive tasks, right. putting the intelligence into it and allowing, like we said a few minutes ago, right? 66% of a seller's time spent on non-selling. What if you, and oh, by the way, 52% will hit quota. Mm-hmm. So then you say, okay, well, hold on a second. If I could give them back 10% of their time, what would the goodness happen on the quota attainment? I, it's not one for one, but it's not, you know, you reduce uh, the time, that, that they're not selling, mm-hmm. it's not going to be zero on quota attainment improvement, right? No. So if you could get 2%, 5%, 6%, you're never going to get to 100, but you sure want to get to the high 60s, low 70s, middle 70s is much better than a 50%er. Yeah, but I think I would take that point a bit further, which is say, and you, we talked about it earlier, and you know, a phrase that you use that's you know, being your best self in front of the customer. That should be the goal of, of using the technology, right? How do we help people become the best version of themselves in the moments they're in front of the customer so that, yeah, yeah, maybe they can increase their selling time a little bit, but they also increase the amount of revenue they're generating per hour of selling time, you know, the time they're in front of the customer, so that they become more productive. And that's why I think, well, that's the, two, why I think when- the two gaps that they're missing with 
way many companies apply these technologies are fantastic as one is not using them to help reps become the best version of themselves. And secondly, is they're not using it in a way to help buyers make decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, the example I'll use is if you are a leader listening to this and you hold your pipeline review meetings the same way you did pre-technology, shame on you. Mm -hmm. Because then what it tells your seller is you don't look at my, what I'm entering and spending right. all my time entering on anyway. Right. right? Yep. And so spend the time to coach me, uh, pay attention, dig into one thing that you think is happening or give some suggestions on ways to move it. But if you're just talking down each deal, why are, why is the rep spending all that time entering the data into the system? Um, yep. And so if you can change your behavior as a manager, it will start to get your sellers to um, not be quite so resistant in that oh, if it's not in your CRM system, you don't get paid. Like that's not the way to get people to embrace what you're trying to do at all. Well, that's, I mean, we, we didn't get our expense by my first sales job. We didn't get our expense reports reimbursed if we didn't fill out our Miller Hyman call sheets. So <laughs> very similar thing, right? Decades later. Well, you know, and the, the last thing I'll say in this is, do you know what year solution selling it wasn't called that, but solution selling the concept was invented or uh, demos were invented. Uh, club was invented. Any guess? Uh, no, I mean, I know when Bosworth wrote his book, but I, I don't, I'm sure it was before that. Yes. Yeah. So it, it wasn't Mike Bosworth who wrote the book solution selling. Yeah. It was in the late 1800s. <laughs> yeah. Probably NCR, right? It was NCR. Yep. It was Mr. Watson himself, right? Yep. And so he created the, uh, I can't go and try to explain to you how a cash register work. Come and see how it works. Right. And the challenge was theft and not knowing how much money they were making and all of that. And that was the solution, right? And then right. they got the sellers um, uh, to, you know, make and earn commission and then they could go to club. And then the whole like training and all of that happened then. So you know, if someone goes, oh, this is a new way to sell modern selling and it's 140 years old at this point, you know, I would argue 130 years old at this point, right. I'd say no. You know, this is why you really have to look long and hard at are you doing things the same way? Have you really challenged the processes right. and are you implementing ways in which you can give time back to your sellers and give them a better opportunity to achieve quota? Perfect. All right. Great way to end. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but um, fantastic. So, Tiffany, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, Andy. Always a pleasure. Can't wait Always for the fourth time. Yeah, we'll do it again. <laughs> so if people want to connect with you, best way to do that, LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm really active. If you want to get your hands on the latest State of Sales report, you can just uh, search State of Sales Salesforce 2020. You can pull it up and it'll give you all the information. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter as well. But I'll, I always look forward to hearing feedback on these interviews. So anything right. you agreed with and or disagreed with, with, I want to hear yep. about it. All right. Perfect. All right, Tiffany, thank you so much. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Tiffany Bova, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>